Hi, I'm retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass podcast, where you'll find unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Before we get started, I encourage you to check out my Amazon author page, where you'll find my series of behind-the-scenes NYPD books for $10 paperback and $2.99 ebook download, including my bestseller, NYPD Laughing in the Line of Duty. Well, I hope everybody who's into football is happy the way things shook out last yesterday with their teams. I hope um, your teams made it into the playoffs, or as Jim Mora once said, playoffs? I, being a diehard Las Vegas Raider fan, I've been with them when they were with when they were the Oakland Raiders, then they became the Los Angeles Raiders, then they became the Oakland Raiders, now they're the Las Vegas Raiders. As you can see, I'm still wearing some of their apparel. We never make it into the playoffs. I mean, we've made it in the playoffs twice since we were in the Super Bowl 20-something years ago. It's just a losing proposition for me, but diehard Raider fan. But anyway, if your NFL team made it in the playoffs, I wish you luck. Which brings me to today's bonus episode. I had a little bit of extra time today, so I figured I'd put out a quick episode about illegal sports betting. Now, I worked in the auto crime division my last 10 years. I am not an expert in illegal gambling, but I just wanted to share a couple of stories about it. I might be off a couple of things, so don't hang me. So illegal sports betting has always been a bloodline for the New York Five families. I'm sure it goes across the country, but I can speak to the five mafia families in the New York City area. They all had a piece of illegal sports betting. And every neighborhood, I don't know about now, but I'm sure, every neighborhood in the five boroughs, every family's got guys on record with them that are bookies, and they take action. And, like, growing up in my neighborhood, I was a little boy, and I remember my grandfather used to love the ponies. He would go to Aqueduct and Belmont, Roosevelt, I think uh, Roosevelt Racetrack, Yonkers Raceway. If there were two cockroaches racing, my grandfather would want to throw a wager on it. So when I was a little boy, we'd go to my grandparents' house for the day, and my grandfather would take me for a walk. And there was this little luncheonette on Randall Avenue. I don't know if it's still there now. Um, it was like one of those places where they had like a little counter. you get get a ham and egg on roll or you know, whatever, little sandwiches and stuff. They had magazines and sodas. And what my grandfather would do is he would put me, pick me up and put me on one of those little swivel stools and order me an egg cream. And then he would go in the back, and there was some guy that was a bookie. I found this out years later. I didn't know what he was doing. He used to, I used to think that he was visiting his friend. And my grandfather was either placing bets or settling up with the guy. And this went on when I was a little boy. And then later on in life, on Randall Avenue, there was a florist, and it was a legal florist in that you could buy funeral arrangements or flowers for your girlfriend, but, you know, as a kid, 13, 14-year-old, you'd see, like, a line of people coming out the back door waiting, and they all were holding um, these blue books. There were these books that used to come out that were supposedly to help you with the illegal number. So sports betting was always around in my neighborhood, and... Then I became a teenager, well, even preteen. So I'm in middle school, and the football sheets start coming out. So little boys back then, I mean, we didn't have the internet or video games. Every kid in my generation growing up used to watch baseball and football. And we would always talk about the games in sixth, seventh grade. And before you knew it, there was always an Italian kid who would show up, and he would have these little 
parlay sheets. They were about this big, and on the front it had all the NFL games with the point spread. And you you could bet. I think the minimum you could pick, you had to pick at least three teams, and. If you hit like a dollar bet on three teams, it was like you win $10. If you bet four teams and they all hit, I mean, it was a sucker's bet, but we all played it. And the funny thing is, even the teachers were in on it. You would think like nowadays, forget it. You know, the teacher would call the principal and, you know, they'd be looking to hang somebody. But back then, there was always an Italian kid that would have one of these sheets. And I'm sure what happened was he would collect his money, go back to Uncle Joe, and Uncle Joe would was the bank and would, you know, settle things up. Then in high school, the sheets got even longer and it had the NFL game. The NFL games were always first. And then beneath it were, the, were a bunch of college games, which I knew absolutely nothing about college football and the point spread back then. I think a couple of times I circled it, but you would circle a couple of teams. And again, it, I think it was like a 10, 10% hit on a bet. So a dollar, you could win 10. Or, but I mean, you had to hit these games just right. And I don't. I never won, and I don't know anyone that did. And when I was a teenager, when I when I was a teenager, I got out of high school, and my parents wanted me to go to college, and I had no interest in going to college. So they said, "Listen, if you're going to live here, you got you got to work." And my dream was to become a New York City police officer, but I had to wait two or three years. So I would leave the house with one job and get another job. It was kind of like catch me if you can. I worked for UPS unloading trucks. I cleaned airplanes at the airport. I worked at several supermarkets, on and on and on. So one day I saw an ad in the newspaper for a local exterminating company. So I said, how difficult can this be? So I went there. I lied to the guy, and I told him I had experience. And he gave me a route. He pointed me to a closet that had a bunch of chemicals in it. And before you knew it, I was going out on my route first thing in the morning, and I was going to different places exterminating. One day... So he he um he kind of figured out I didn't know what I was doing, and he called my reference, which I listed another exterminating company in the neighborhood, and he called that guy up, and the guy said, I never heard of the kids. So he calls me in, and he says, hey, Vic, come here. He says, I just called Anthony from, I don't know, Bugs Best Exterminating Company. He says he never heard of you. I said, are you going to fire me now? He goes, well, I can't have you just out there spraying for cockroaches and putting poison down if you don't know what you're doing. So he gave me a little bit of training, and then, I was back out on my route. But what the unique thing about this exterminating company was every day, probably about 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, this little old Italian guy would come in and he was always well-dressed. He was always in a suit and he had like a, a, like a, like a hat on, you know, like one of those dress hats they used to wear from the 1940s. And he would come in, he would smile and he had like a little desk in the, in the front of this exterminating company. And it was a little, you know, it was a little storefront thing. And people would come in all day long and play the number with this guy and bet the illegal number. And I think he took sports action on the football games, too. And sometimes, like, I guess he got sick or he had to be somewhere. His wife would be there. It was like a guest spot. Like, and she was, she'd be sitting at the desk and she'd be taking action. They never got arrested. And, you know, growing up in those neighborhoods, you knew better not to say anything. So it's just one of those things that you saw go on and on. And another experience I had with illegal sports betting was I probably, probably about 18, 19, I'm working for this exterminating company. And one of the spots on, on my route was once a month, I had to go to this place over in Arthur Avenue in that neighborhood, Little Italy in the Bronx, and exterminate this bar. And the place was a rat hole bar. 
And they wanted me in there at six in the morning and they wanted me out as quickly as possible. So I would go in there and it was obvious it was like a gambling den. Like I used to see like the sports betting sheets all over the place and it was a den of iniquity. So one day I was behind the bar exterminating and I hear the bartender or the guy that opened the place talking to somebody at the front door. So I kind of pick my head up from behind the bar and I look and there's a cop there in uniform and he's taking a brown paper bag from the guy that owns the bar. And he goes, what the fuck is this kid doing here? And he starts yelling, screaming. The, the, the bartender says, listen, don't worry about it. The bartender actually put the cop in his place and told him to mind his own business and just, you know, don't worry about it. So the cop left. And uh, I said, geez, I'm sorry. He goes, nah, don't worry about him. He's just a friend of mine. Don't worry about it, kid. So I went back to exterminating. Now, <laughs> there could have been anything in that brown paper bag. It could have been lunch. It could have been food. But I knew better. And I just, again, I'm 19 years old, kept my mouth shut. So wouldn't you know it, a couple of years later, I go into the New York City Police Department. I graduate. I go into field training. And guess who I spot walking around the locker room? That old timer that I saw in the bar. And he recognized me. And he didn't say anything, but every now and then I'd be in the locker room getting dressed and I would hear him. He had a very gravelly voice and he goes, all I got to do is six months before I can retire. Six months. Kind of letting me know, like, don't cause me any problems, kid. And what wound up happening was he retired and I used to see him sometimes driving around in his car with prostitutes in the car around the precinct, like... He left the police department, but he still hung out in the neighborhood, and he was driving around with prostitutes in the car. So later on, when I went to the narcotics division, years later, I t there was a cop there from his precinct that was, like, older that would have known that group of guys. And I mentioned him. He goes, oh. He goes, yeah, he was bad news. He goes, he was, you know, pre-NAP commission. He was hired, like, in the early 70s. He goes, he was a dirtbag. He goes, I'm not surprised at all. So let's go into a little bit what I know about illegal sports betting. So I'm sure the mafia and organized crime in New York still takes action in the street, but a lot of it's been moved offshore. So what they do is they set up these bogus companies in, in countries where, illegal, where sports betting is legal, like Belize and Costa Rica, and you can go on websites and bet, and you know they'll pay you if you win. But the thing is, it's totally illegal. It's legal. It's it's legal in those countries, but it's not legal over here. So they're getting away with it. But the way they get snagged is at some point, that money has to make its way back into the United States. I mean, what's the point of setting up this whole clandestine operation online with a website? And I'm sure they have a bank over there. At some point, you have to bring the cash back. And that's where law enforcement is waiting for you. And on top of getting arrested for running an illegal sports betting ring, guess who else is you're going to have a problem with? The Internal Revenue Service. So these guys, they're up and running. They're making a lot of money. But at some point, they're going to get caught because, again, it's the money that's going to get you in trouble. And you just follow the money trail, and they wind up getting arrested. So when I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division, our office was next door to Bronx Vice. So, I mean, I really don't know the ins and outs of how to run a, a, a gambling case. But, you know, we would walk in and out of their office. They would come in and out of our office, and you would hear things. And the one thing that I knew about Vice was they lived for football season because just the mafias making their money, that's when the Vice unit 
makes their big busts and makes a lot of arrests. And you could, they would love to hit these guys around the playoffs or the Super Bowl to interrupt the cash flow, you know, going to organized crime. And they would target one or two organized crime operations. They, I mean, you're not going to get all of them, obviously, but they would try to take out one or two of the big ones and they would try to hit them just before the Super Bowl to kind of get the, you know, to, to screw them up that they're not going to collect their money or the patrons aren't going to be able to get their bets in. So that was a big thing that the vice unit was always up and around the holidays, especially playoff and, and the Super Bowl. That was that was actually the vice unit Super Bowl. And the one time I got involved in a gambling case was I was in the narcotics division. And in the narcotics division, you get these things called kites. And what a kite is, somebody walks into their local precinct and they say, someone's dealing drugs out of this building or someone's dr- dealing drugs out of this storefront. So the police, the cops will take a report. Back then it was called an intelligence report. And like a kite, it would make its way to your office. So I worked in the Manhattan North Narcotics Division. And I think the precincts I covered was the 3-4, which is Washington Heights, and the 2-3, which is Spanish Harlem. I mean, they couldn't be further apart from each other. But everybody got two precincts. And you would cover the kites that came in. So I got this kite that there was drug sales out of this bodega somewhere in the 3-4, lower end of the 3-4, and there was also gambling involved. So my sergeant said, all right, you know what? Find somebody in vice that knows what they're doing. Call them up and see if they want to come along with this. So we call up vice, and they really didn't want much to do with it. They kind of thought it was bullshit. So I wound up going with my sergeant, and basically what we did was we sent an undercover in a couple of times to make drug buys, and, you know, they they said, no, we don't sell drugs here. So either the undercover couldn't get through or they weren't selling drugs there. But what the undercover did tell us was in the back, they had a couple of those Joker poker machines. They're basically illegal video games where you throw money in and you get credits and then you play with this fixed machine. And usually the machine screws you, but on the off chance you hit, you can cash in your credits. So I think there was a couple of slot machines and Joker poker machines in there. So then we went back to Vice, and we told them about it, and they still <laughs> really didn't care. So I said, can, listen, we're going to hit these guys because i got to close out this kite because once the kite is open, you have to show either there's no criminal activity involved in this thing or you took action and what you did to close this kite. So I got some detective from Vice to help me, and we walked in there one day to buy a soda, and right like 30, 30 feet into this place, you can see the Joker poker machines and everything. So we locked up the owner and a couple of other people inside. And see, I didn't, I didn't realize this, but you don't take the whole joke of poker machine. I guess that's too much of a pain in the ass because then you would need like a rack truck and then you've got to store these joke of poker machines somewhere. So the vice detective brought with him a sledgehammer. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what he was going to do with this thing. So after we make the arrest, he, t- he tells me to we start rocking these Joker poker machines off the wall, and he turns it a certain way, and he takes the sledgehammer, and he breaks in a panel. I said, okay. So we scooped the money out, and we vouchered the money. It was all changed, which is a pain in the ass. And then what you voucher besides the money you recover is the, um, the board that runs the computer for the game. So we had to get, pull these boards out, and then... 
you wrap them up and then you voucher them. So I thank God I had the vice guy there because I would have taken the machines and I would have probably made the property clerk at the three, four precinct miserable because I had these big box joker poker and slot machines. So those are my gambling stories. Again, I'm sure there's going to be people watching this and saying, well, that's not the way it works. I'm not a gambling expert. I don't claim to be. It's just these are my stories from growing up in the Bronx and seeing organized crime and illegal gambling and how I touched upon it a couple of times during my NYPD career. So, oh, 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 and the funny thing is when we locked that guy up and took the Joker poker machine boards, there was a big sign on the wall, and it said, if we get busted, you still get paid, which I thought was actually pretty funny. Well, you know, criminals do have a sense of humor. So anyway, if you work in law enforcement or have an interesting criminal background, or if you want to advertise on this show, please hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at VicFerrari50. If, and please, if you're listening to the podcast and you like it, please subscribe on um, YouTube or if you could leave me a review on, on Apple Music or whatever. And if you enjoy the content, please check out my Amazon author page. Just type in the name Vic. Ferrari Like the Car, where you can preview all my NYPD books for free, including NYPD Laughing in the Line of Duty. Sorry, guys, I know I'm a pain in the ass with this, but I got to sell books. And as always, I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in, especially my listeners in Zurich, Staten Island, New York, Woodbury, New Jersey, St. Pete, Florida, (laughs) Accident, Maryland, and Beth Page, New York. Now, I got a funny, quick Beth Page story. When I was a little boy, I think I was in probably fourth or fifth grade, something like that. They took us on a school trip to old Bethpage, New York. And it's kind of like something out of Back to the Future. It's like this little town where, you know, there's horses walking around crapping and root beer and pretzels. And, you know, it's a little town that's like the 1700s. So we went on this school trip and there was a nerd in my class who... um you know, a different kind of kid just was always getting in trouble and doing something stupid. And he fell into the horse shit. And it was a big deal because the teachers <laughs> didn't want to let him on the bus. And this is pre-cell phone. So, like, they were trying to get in touch with his family in the Bronx to have them come out to Bethpage, Long Island to bring him a change of clothes. Well, they didn't get in touch with the parents. And the kid had to ride the bus home smelling like horse shit. So... That's my story from old Beth Page. So anyway, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And I'll probably have an episode out on Thursday. So take care and goodbye.